I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Tyler Coleman on the show, better known as Dr. Vino. Hello, sir. How are you? Good, thank you. Great to be here. Nice to see you. So you were studying political economy at Northwestern University. I was indeed, yes. And what is political economy? Political economy, generally speaking, looks at macroeconomic questions. And so in my case, we were doing it across different countries. And the industrial sector is a common lens of analysis in political economy. And so fortunately for me, all these big and serious industries like automobiles and semiconductors and machine tools had all been thoroughly analyzed using the lenses of political economy. And so I proposed a study on the political economy of the wine industry in France and the United States to my committee. And when they got over their belly laugh, they said, you know, there might actually be something there. Maybe you should go out and research it and report back to us. And so a few years later, I did report back to them. And in the end, they really liked the project. So so when you look at the wine industry of America and France through the lens of political economy, what does that look like? Looking at, for example, the long run of the current day situation, so the roots of current problems that uh, are in both countries. For example, the Appalachian system is looking quite uh, sclerotic today. And so how, what was it originally? Why was it originally formed? And, and how did it sort of come off the rails? And then similarly in the United States, a lot of the politics is about uh, shipping of wine across state lines in America. And so that is a situation that obviously has you know, roots that are 100 years deep. Political economy approach to the wine industry, yeah, it would be, you know, how larger organizations than a consumer or even a company would, you know, sort of jockey for power. And for example, Champagne, where to draw the lines for the AOC would be one example, you know, and they even had some bloody protests and, and uh, uh, marches about where those lines should be drawn in the early 20th century. So it can get violent sometimes. Fortunately, not too often, though. What did you find? I found that France is generally considered to have more of a role of the state in the government. But in fact, for a lot of the producers associations in France, they're, they're self-governing. And so that was sort of a counterintuitive finding, whereas the United States is considered to have more of a liberal market economy. But in fact, the state, albeit 
devolve to the state level, the 50 states, uh, actually has quite an uh, important role in the commerce and wine uh, trade in the United States. And it's, you know, if you ask an importer or somebody who lives in a, a less sort of central market, then uh, you can certainly feel the impact of that. It's, it's difficult for a, a new winery looking to get into the United States to navigate all 50 markets and and certainly somebody you know, in a state that doesn't have a vibrant culture of wine, it'd be hard to be a consumer there because it might not be able to be shipped. It might even be a felony to have wine shipped there. So it's difficult. This is because it's alcohol, basically, that is so highly regulated as opposed to a widget. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, I mean, wine in France is considered food. And so, and it's, you know, lightly regulated in terms of the, the, the trafficking of it, if you will. But in the United States, it's contraband and it's, you know, easier to ship. Uh, you know, guns and uh, th- through the mail than it is uh, across state lines than it is to ship, you know, wine. So, and that became a book for you. It wasn't just a dissertation, but yeah, you actually wrote it. It served as the basis of my, my first book, Wine Politics How Governments, Environmentalists, Mobsters, and Critics Influence the Wines We Drink. And it had to be the mobsters part that really sold the book, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Went to the publisher. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> how did you approach it? You um, know, what was that sales talk like? You go in, you're like, hey, I want to take this dissertation I'm doing about the wine industry and I want to make it into a book. And it's got Al Capone in it. Right, right, right. Well, fortunately, actually, they approached me. And so that made it an easy sell. But uh, they did want to reduce the uh, subtitle. But I said, it has to have mobsters in it. So uh, mobsters, very important part of the story. So and sell copies. If the industry were different in the United States and you could just sell like you can in Japan with the same taxation, same laws for the whole country, for instance, do you think that we would consume different wine? Is it more difficult to drink, say, California wine in Indiana as a result of how we've structured the market? Yeah, I think that's a great counterfactual. I think that the wine consumption in America would be really different if we didn't have these interstate laws. Because, yeah, I think somebody in Indiana, for example, uh, would have so much more access, be so much easier. And even if there is little enforcement of these laws that are on the books, at least the consumers could be doing it with a clear conscience, you know. But also, uh, e-commerce in wine has been greatly held back because of these restrictions. For example, Amazon has been trying to get into the wine industry for a long time, into wine sales rather, and they have now. But it's been their, it's a, they're on their third attempt, a third business model in a way for for getting into the wine industry. And so, and you know, Wine.com has had a lot of problems since the late '90s when it was formed, and so they've gone through you know a few uh, recapitalizations and things. So it's been it's a difficult space to to sell wine online and and that's strange because we buy everything online you know and so you'd think that it would be a little bit easier are there entrenched organizations that are pushing back from a change to that are there people who say well we don't we don't want that to change we would prefer to lobby that it didn't change oh well definitely yeah and so there are distributors uh, and there's been a tremendous consolidation of distributors over the past few decades so actually it works against wineries, which have, we've seen a tremendous proliferation of wineries in the United States in the past couple of decades. So at the same time, while there are more wineries, there are fewer distributors. And then there's also, you know, obviously more consumers too. So, uh, cause we've had rising uh, per capita consumption rate of wine in the United States for the past 19 years. So yeah, it's, it's a growing market that's got this hourglass kind of shape to it because everything right now has to pass through distributors but uh that's and they and they maintain a lot of times they maintain that in various states through you know 
greasing the uh, the political wheels uh, to maintain that position. And it's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. Uh, I do think that distributors in the best case scenario can certainly serve consumers very well. But I think in the worst case, they are quite dis- quite a disadvantageous situation for consumers as they're prevented from either sampling different wines, having a greater diversity of wines, or having wines available at lower prices. Seems like to be a pretty good position to have a lot of people who want to sell to you and a lot of people who want to buy from you, but they both have to go through you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, the glamour may be in the winery part of the wine business, but the profits, it could be well argued, are in the distributor side. And you know, that's where you've seen Warren Buffett's uh, Berkshire Hathaway make some investments, is in is in some distributors. So, uh, uh, and he's not, you know, considered a dummy in uh, financial matters. So. Your book also tackled some environmental issues. What came up for you when you were looking at that chapter of the book? Yeah, well, just looking at uh, particularly land use issues in Napa, in California, where there is uh, continued uh, desire to expand vineyards as well as uh, you know housing, and so how to balance those as well as efforts of preservation. And so that continues to be a big issue to this day. Also in France, where the in terms of land use, the land is actually protected, agricultural land is protected. And there has been, over the past few decades, an effort to keep vineyard acreage zero sum, so not to expand it. But just in the most recent EU reform, there's actually been an effort at reducing the vineyard acreage uh, to, to reduce production and to you know, draw down what they call the wine lake a vast amount of surplus wine. You also started a blog. Yes. How did the blog get started? Well, so after I finished my PhD, uh, you have this uh, defense, and I did not pour wine in my defense, although in retrospect, perhaps that would have been a good idea. But uh, nonetheless, everything went okay. And uh, at the- Was that a distribution problem? <laughs> no, no. not able to get the wine through the mail? Lack of creativity on my part, that's all. <laughs> but- um, uh, so, so my friends had a party for me after the defense, and uh, they're trying on sort of the new title. They're like, Dr. Coleman, way to go. And uh, one of my friends like, you should be called Dr. Vin uh, because of this topic of your dissertation. I said, that is so pretentious sounding. How about Dr. Vino? And everybody's like, ah, Dr. Vino, all right. And so one of my friends liked it so much, he walked right over to a computer and bought me the URL, drvino.com, and he gave it to me. He's like, here's your graduation present, a URL. And I'm like, now what the hell do I do with that? And so I'm like, now I have to make a website. So I started doing HTML, and then uh, I eventually you know, got a website together. But then in 2004, blogging became more mainstream. And by 2005, I switched over to blogging software full-time. And so, yeah, it was great. I mean, academic writing, shall we say, has a fairly limited audience. Uh, writing on the internet, all of a sudden, wow, there were a lot of people through the magic of Google who were reading my stuff. And so it was really very fun. And I started to do some freelance journalism as well. And, and people, you know, responded to the stories and and it was great. And so I think that's really an important part of of wine writing today is is having that uh, response and having making making wine writing more of a discussion. And so that's why I think you know the writing on the internet is is so powerful. And your second book sort of stemmed out of writing on the blog. It did. Yeah. I I sold that book based on my blog, yeah. And what was the second book about? Uh it was about 
you know, just trying to get people out of their wine rut and trying to try new different wines. And so I suggested plotting a seasonal arc to your wine consumption to sort of change the wine in your wine glass as the food on your plate uh, changes, tying into sort of locavore and seasonal foods. And so, but I tried not to do like cliche things, uh, you know, oh, it's getting a the firewood out, so it must be time for port, you know. Uh, uh, but to try and mix things up and and encourage people to taste, but really the, the bottom line was just to encourage people to try uh, and sample the amazing amount of wines that are available today in the the wine market in the United States. Because that seems like quite a bit of a different book than the first book. Well, yeah, apparently, see. Uh, in the first book, I didn't make any wine recommendations, but apparently everyone needs to be told which wine to have with dinner tonight. So I had to do that in my second book. So that, <laughs> that's, that's chock-a-block. What, that's what the publisher said? Yeah, basically, yeah. They were like this political economy thing. It's not not flying for not fly. big sales? or uh, No, no, no. Actually, it was a different publisher. So oh, okay. The, the, first, okay. the first book was with the University of California Press. Uh, and the book did actually quite well. Uh, so I was really very pleasantly surprised with that. And the second book was with Simon & Schuster. So a bigger press, uh, you know, different uh, side of the country and stuff, different target market things. So. Have you thought about combining them a year in wine with Al Capone, like recommendations for mobsters? Oh, that'd be good, huh? You know, and every yeah. day it could be like a different mob wine that yeah, would yeah. go well with, you know, spaghetti and meatballs or well, given your prosciutto and brajul. Yes, stuff, given kind of your tremendous uh, knowledge of Italian wines, we should collaborate on that. But yeah, so that brings us to the point that you have mostly focused a lot in United States and France and traveled in France and Spain. So why, where's Italy? <laughs> like where, where have you been? Why not? You know, Italy's terrific. No, I've uh, I've been to Italy. Uh, oh, you have? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's oh, terrific. I left love, that off the bio. I love I love Italy. Uh, I just don't speak Italian. That's all. Yeah, yeah. So um, they don't either. They they, they gesture it. <laughs> just, okay, all right, yeah. But uh, no, Italy is terrific. What I mean, it's such a terrific wine country. I mean, over a, a thousand indigenous grape varieties and such a long tradition and so many great flavors. Uh, it's really amazing. So. So you write the blog, and it's been over 10 years now, right? Oh, uh, yeah, it has, yeah. It's like a long time. And how have you seen blogging change besides software bases? I mean, what's happened Well, that um, It's gotten a lot more participatory. And uh, the, when I first started the blog part, on my website, you couldn't even post a comment. Uh, then I started blogging, and for the first six months of blogging, like, nobody posted a comment. And so it was quite different than where we are today. With social media, the rise of social media has sort of been a challenge for blogs, blog format, because a lot of discussion happens over there. But I think it's also made people more into actually participating in online conversations. I think in 2004, 2005, people were a little bit more uh, reluctant to actually put their name on a comment. And uh, because they were afraid that it would come back to haunt them during their job search or whatever, you know? And so, uh, uh, but now... Uh, with Facebook and people identifying themselves truthfully and and also having you know extensive discussions online, then uh, I think people have become much more willing to chime in and, and share their opinions. And so, so you said so. social media had been a bit of a challenge for blogs. Have you seen kind of a, a parabola curve of they weren't too many of them when you first started? They got quite a bit popular, and now it seems like there's less and less. Or yeah, I think you I think you've seen the certainly uh, new blogs have diminished. And blogging just has to find a, a where it fits in the social media, in the world of social media and the, the, the sort of changed landscape. Because from 2005, say, to, I don't know, uh, 2000, I don't know, 10, 
something like that, 2011 or something. I don't know. Blogs were, you know, gained a huge amount of traction, but now, now it's, I th- I'd say that the social media is more ascendant. And so it's really important to have a presence on social media as well and be involved in discussions there. So you're saying that basically people are spending more time on Twitter and, and Facebook and less time on one person's personal blog. I would say, yeah, that's, that's true. I think that there've been a couple of changes to kind of hurt blogs too, uh, both thanks to Google. Um, they retired Reader, the Google Reader. And so, you know, for me, I had over 15,000 subscribers via Google Reader. And, you know, I don't know if all those people have migrated to other platforms such as Feedly or or whatever, other the this old Reader. But um, that's one thing they've done. I mean, social media have really kind of replaced RSS feeds anyway. And so, that's why it's important to be engaged there as well. But also Google's changed their search algorithms too. They constantly update them and we never know the secret sauce. They tell us parts of the algorithm, but not everything. And so it seems like they've enhanced advertising related search results at the expense of organic search results. And so if you're not an advertiser, then you get kind of pushed down the page. And also more and more searches are happening via mobile. And so then the screen gets smaller. And so if you're not right at the top, then you know it's also hard. So Google, a lot of changes just in the way Google does stuff has impacted blogs too. I don't think people have really talked about that that much. When you say that Twitter has replaced RSS feeds, do you mean essentially that what you're doing is announcing that there's a new post on the blog on Twitter as opposed to waiting for the feed to give it to feed it to people? Yeah, I mean that's one thing you can do. I I do tweet out a link to my my posts, uh, but I don't think that's certainly not all that I do on Twitter and. I think that you have to be sort of a good citizen and be like um, a normal person on social media, kind of as if you were having a conversation and you're not going to talk entirely about yourself the entire time. And so I retweet other people and engage with other people, you know, just as if we were all sitting around in an enormous room somewhere uh, talking. And so, so yeah, but I mean, RSS has uh, become more difficult and pe- fewer people follow that. So it's an important medium. So, so I do feel that it's okay to push out a link, one link per post on Twitter. It's not too egotistical. Have you found situations where you invest a lot in one platform and then that platform sort of withers and then you're like, oh, well, I have to kind of migrate over here, but all that stuff that I did over there or all that community that I built over there seems to no longer be as relevant. Uh, no, no, I haven't. I, I never got into, I don't know, photo sites that preceded Instagram, for example. But Instagram, I think, is quite fun. So, so yeah, no, I haven't, uh, I don't feel like I've missed too many things in that regard. But I do think that there are, I mean, the potential is there because there, every day there seems like there's a new app or a new something. One of the things I noticed about your blog, which is heavily trafficked as far as I can tell, is that it often... As far as these things go, I suppose, yeah. It's all just a wine blog. <laughs> well, I mean... But it's an interesting thing about wine is that people get really into it. Yeah, right? definitely. In a way that they get really into music, but they don't get so into like blenders. Right. You know? They're not yeah. like, oh, the Honeywell. Vitamix, I you don't know. know. I, mean, I mean, maybe a couple <laughs> people do that, but there's not thousands of people who are like, oh, well, the one with the extra blade is really right. where you want. You right, know, right, they right. don't. Yeah. So it's most often tied into news, your blog. It seems like there's often a short discussion about a topical point. Yeah, I mean, there isn't a lot of breaking news in wine, generally speaking. There are a few things that happen, but but yeah, I, I don't know, maybe maybe those are the easier posts for me just to bang off, you know, is react to something that's happening. But yeah, ideally I would weave that in with a little bit more of um, 
investigation or a trip report or tasting notes and stuff like that. But those those do tend to take a little more time. And so sometimes I'm short on time and just react to something I see out there. It's a little bit easier, faster. And and so, uh, and sometimes higher reward too, to be honest, in terms of engagement, reader engagement. So sometimes I've put together huge tasting note write-ups sort of things, and then they kind of go over like a lead balloon. So, you know, you never know what's going to work. You just throw it all out there. But when you look at the stats and you see that a certain post got, you know, 10,000 viewers and another post got like a thousand, does that change how you structure your own time and articles? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. If I were really scrupulous about looking at my site stats and managing my own time, then yes, that would definitely drive it. However, I'm not particularly. (laughs) So yeah. What are some of the posts and news pieces that have come out in the last year that have really drawn you in? Well, I mean, the continuing. There's a lot of interest in the saga uh, that's unraveling and unfolding every day at the Wine Advocate. Robert Parker did a, a huge amount for has done a huge amount for wine, wine consumers, and the wine industry uh, in America and around the world. But uh, he's obviously had some big changes at his publication in the past few years, and ended up selling a majority stake to investors in Singapore. So, and then Antonio Galloni left the publication. So that's you know that was a big a big deal a lot of a lot of interest in continued interest in Robert Parker I mean he's really you know the biggest name in wine in the wine world uh, there there's no winemaker who comes close in terms of name recognition uh, you know with Robert Parker and I don't know Gary Vaynerchuk may have given him a run for the money uh, if he'd stuck around a little bit longer but uh, even with his one thousand episodes of Wine Library TV, he got pretty far along and pretty close to eclipsing Parker, you could say. And now he's having a lot of success doing uh, social media marketing. But those two people seem very different in their approach and uh, depth level and way of engaging an audience. So is it what they have in common? Is it just the fact that they have a lot of followers? Like, is that the true thing that makes them interesting in the conversation? You know, Parker gained a lot of authority and, and, and really based his reputation on his self-proclaimed tasting ability and then on his probity, on his ethics, and uh, tried to, you know, he frequently beat down the editorial credibility of other wine writers. And so, but I mean, both of those aspects have been called somewhat into question in the past few years. So yeah, he does have a following. I think that it's in a part based on legacy though, and his legacy achievements. But yeah, Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk really took wine communication in a different direction and, and made it much more interactive and much more fun, uh, much more appealing to a younger consumer, younger listener. And so, I mean, Parker printed the Wine Advocate for a long time exclusively on this manila paper with brown font, you know, and no images. And so not exactly engaging for the younger consumer, that medium. Now, more recently, they've tried to have more videos and things. But Gary, I mean, it's the polar opposite of Gary. And so Gary didn't spend a ton of time with each wine, but but that wasn't important. He had a ton of enthusiasm and as well as knowledge, but uh, but really conveyed that in such a different way. He he really worked to use his term hustled to get his authority. And so yeah, he did a good job. It's such a different style. And I don't know. I mean, I think that one thing that you can definitely use to underscore the difference between the two is the fact that you know Parker for a long time grew up in this kind of vacuum where he was this authority who handed down these points from on high and consumers really liked that and lapped it up. 
But Gary personifies sort of the internet era where it's everything can be discussed and debated. And he's quite clear that it's his opinion. And so it's such a different type of discussion that we're having now. It's more confusing sometimes for outsiders than just to follow one, one person who authoritatively speaks, hands down the truth from on high. But yeah, it's really important that it's not just vertical and top down now, it's more lateral and uh, we have more of a discussion. Uh, everything's contested and we discover new things, new grape varieties and uh, are brought to our attention. And so it's, yeah, it's very, very fun. Uh, you know, it's, as I say, it's a little bit, uh, sometimes it's harder to follow, but it's, it is very fun and lively. What are the legacies of those two people? In a way, you talked about disengagement of both, Parker becoming a little bit more Lion in Winter and Gary leaving the wine world to go to social media consulting. What did they leave behind in the wine world? I think that Parker definitely inspired a generation of consumers, probably, you know, baby boomer generation, to really try wine and get into wine and make wine a part of of their lives and something that they really enjoyed. And I think that's a huge thing for wine in America. And I think that even we who are not, who are younger than the baby boomer generation owe them a debt just for getting, you know, our parents' generation into wine. And that was really, really important thing for American, the story of wine in America, because we're still really pretty young in our discovery of wine in America, but he took us a really big first step. But I think that Gary you could say represents uh, the second generation of wine critic or commentator, much more interactive, faster paced. And in a way, I mean, because he he was doing all his videos from his shop, a bit more commercial. And so unfortunately, you know, wine writing today has really grasped like much of media to find a successful business model and uh, having an editorial on the back of a retail outlet certainly worked at Wine Library. And so you know, maybe that'll be emulated more in the future. I don't know. And how much of that is a generational situation and how much of that is means? Like how much of that is there's a whole other generation whose parents drank wine, whereas before maybe their parents didn't drink wine and they were the first. And we're trying to reach those people because they're a growth market where the other people are a declining market because people die or stop drinking or get into poor health or decide they have enough wine already. Whereas the young people, you're going to sell them wine for another 20 years. So that's somebody you want to look at as long-term. And how much of that is different tools were available to different people? It's partly the medium, partly also the message. I mean, just the way Parker speaks, it's very authoritatively. And I think one of the great things that Parker does in his tasting notes is to convey his enthusiasm for a wine that he likes. I think today, too often, tasting notes are overly analytical or precious with all of these incredibly recherche descriptors that serve to alienate consumers who, who can't find those descriptors when they taste the wine. But Parker, you know, sort of just plowed ahead with his notes and banged them out, and you could just feel the enthusiasm for wines that he liked. And so, that's part of it, getting people fired up about wine. And that's what he did, uh, I think, really, really well. And that'll be his his main legacy. But in a way, Gary did that too. So are we going to find ourselves in a situation in 10 years where a lot of people are going to be like, I can't believe Gary was so enthusiastic about the Jets that it made me a Jets fan. You know, he got me so fired up about it. I wish I had been able to have my own democratic approach to sports and not be told authoritatively that the Jets were the best. I mean, are, are we going to 
pick a bone with Gary in 10 years for his enthusiasm? No, I'm not picking a bone with Parker about his enthusiasm. I mean, I think that's a good thing. But I think that Gary, yeah, I mean, maybe his love of the Jets underscores how everything else that he's saying is an opinion and you can take it or leave it, you know, because I'm sure there are Giants fans that watched his show too, you know, and so they just realize they can pick and choose or or that it's all opinion and, you know, you don't have to just accept everything that he's saying. So where does Tyler fit into that? Where does the doctor... <laughs> I mean, if these are the big personalities in the business, well, you're also a big personality in the business. A lot of people read your blog. 15,000 people floating around without the reader. What are they supposed to do? You know, how do you see yourself? I wish I had a uh, good answer for you, but uh, I need to have a board meeting or or go on a corporate retreat with myself to be able to find that, fall into my own arms backwards, you know, to have team building experience with my own sole proprietor, single employee operation. But I mean, you've been writing the blog for 10 years, so you must have a sense of what your voice is. No? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think that... um, you know, it's a difficult time right now for wine writing. And so we're all kind of looking for the best, what we see as the best approach. I don't think that I really have an answer for that. And so in a way, just kind of trying to just keep going and uh, stay a day ahead or something. Uh, I don't have a real master plan for world wine domination or anything like that. Uh, Maybe I should, maybe I should have that. So I don't know. What about education? I feel like you've often been in classroom settings where you've introduced newcomers to wine. What's that experience been like? Yeah, definitely. I think that's an important thing for wine writers to do because oftentimes wine writers can be too removed from the consumer, incidentally enough. It's kind of kind of funny. But hanging out with collectors or cool sommeliers like you, you know. Uh, Is there uh, someone else in the room? That you're <laughs> no, no, no. To? Okay, no. I wasn't sure. <laughs> but, um, uh, and so it is important to stay in touch with, with consumers and what they want and where, what their level of enthusiasm is and wine knowledge and where people are today. And so, yeah, so I teach at NYU. I've been teaching there for the past eight years. I taught wine class at the University of Chicago Graham School, the Continuing Studies program there before that. And uh, this past summer, I taught at the New School, my first ever four-credit wine course for undergrads, where I actually had to assign them grades. And I you know, was uh, very afraid of, of giving someone a bad grade for a wine class. I didn't think their parents would like that very much. But anyway, uh, they all did a good job. Gives a whole new meaning to 90-point scores and 89s. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, yeah, where yeah. the rubber meets the road. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so so it's fun. I think there is a huge interest in wine in America, especially among younger people. I think it's almost to the point where it's sort of required learning for a lot of people in their 20s, say, because they sort of realize that, you know, beer was cool in college, but I really want to learn more about wine now and that people like to you know, feel comfortable with the wine list and uh, have something to say about wine. In fact, this semester at my NYU class, I asked people why the first day, why they wanted to take the class. And one guy said, because I want to be that guy at a party. And uh, and a lot of other people were like, oh, I want to be that guy too. And so a lot of people really want to learn more about wine and know more about wine and to be, you know, seem confident about, uh, you know, just in being able to discuss wine. You don't have to be like a jerk about it, you know, or, or an, uh, you know, a pompous. Uh, uh, stereotypical wine wine geek and whatnot, but a podcast host, <laughs> right? <laughs> a vlogger, yeah, one of those. <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah, but they want to have they want to be more comfortable with it and 
So yeah, it's fun. It's as you say, it's such a multifaceted beverage. You can approach it from so many different ways. And so a lot of people want to want to get into it and learn more about wine and, and talk about it. It sounds like comfort comes up a lot when you're talking about making people feel yeah. comfortable with wine. Was that a process that happened right away for you or was that something that took a little bit of time? Or uh, how- yeah, well, my, my parents uh, did not drink much wine when I was growing up. They weren't opposed to it or anything. They served us uh, sparkling catawba at Thanksgiving, and uh, it, they just weren't that into it. Now they're into it, though, a bit more, and uh, that's a good thing, but a bit late for my purposes. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I actually moved to France when I was 18, and I lived with the French family, and I went and you know saw vineyards and saw people actually drinking wine uh, you know, with food. And uh, yeah, when I came back to the States... It was this neat product in this age of globalization where everything can be outsourced to have this wine that was from grapes grown at a certain bend in the river and certain hillside and then put in a bottle right there and then sent around the world. You know, It couldn't be outsourced. Uh, it was from this particular place. And so it's got this really unique character uh, that's incredibly enchanting. And uh, it also tastes pretty good in the best examples. It seems to me like you've written two books about wine in the sense that the first book is about how wine is bought and sold and what affects that uh, and how it's moved around. And then the second book is Drinking Wine, how you might go about doing that in a way that is thoughtful and works. But it seems like a lot of engagement on the blog is often about other people, the discussion about wine, talking more about wine. If you were to uh, apply a political economy lens to the world of wine discussion, Mm -hmm. what are the organizations or influences that affect individuals in that world? Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I mean, it's so unregulated, the discussion of wine, that there isn't necessarily a, uh, a politics of it. But I do think that the discussion flows from a few people with authority, that, that people can gain authority in this world of wine discussion, as freewheeling as it may seem to people on the outside. There are voices with authority and I think that authority, though, has to be worn a little bit more lightly than Parker has worn it, where he goes off on diatribes against people, particularly. But I think that you know it can be measured in Google PageRank or number of followers on Twitter or Facebook or what have you. But yeah, I think that that, that would be a way of looking at it, that once you can crack into the discussion and have a relatively large platform or whatever, then you can, you know, make an influence and stuff. But the most important thing is just to say, say good stuff, because, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a hundred thousand followers, if you're just a spam bot retweeting random things, then you're not really adding to the conversation. You can, wineries can go buy 50,000 followers on Facebook and then talk into the wilderness, you know? Uh, and so you gotta, you, if you have 500 followers and you say something good and funny and people are going to retweet it and find it and and things. And so that's why I think it's important to be a good citizen and to to have, you know, engage, remember it's a conversation and to not just like do your own thing all the time and talk about your own stuff. So you said two things there that were really interesting to me. And one is that you could put a number to how influential someone was, whereas in a previous generation, what was kind of interesting is that people were putting numbers to the quality of wine. Hmm. Now you can put a number to how influential that person is on me. Yeah, you could. I, I don't know how accurate that would be, though. I mean, there's like things like clout, but I've never even looked at clout, I have to admit. Uh, but I mean, so there's certainly going to be organizations that want to try and compile all this and, and make a, a number, a score, influence, influencer score or something like that. And maybe that can be done successfully. But I do find that a lot of attempts to count 
the discussion about wine on Twitter or Facebook, for example, that they often can't capture just the stuff that we would talk about casually. You know, if we're tweeting something like, hey, check out this red that I had that was really good or something like that, because I'm not using a brand name there and I'm not using wine. And so their little search bots can't pick that sort of thing up. And if I send a connect an image, then you'll understand what I'm talking about, but the search bot might not know what that is or something like that. So, so I mean, yeah, yeah, I do think that, that you can attach a number, but I'm just not I don't know of a, a a methodology that exists today that successfully captures all that. Doesn't mean to say that it couldn't that you're not going to you know go and code that up later today or something like that. But in the same way that barrel samples used to be rated like 89 plus or 89 to 92, and there was some range of yeah, I don't know where yeah. it's going to go, yeah, or yeah, Tanzer yeah. didn't agree with Parker. You know, this guy gave it a 95. This guy gave it an 88. Right. Yeah. I mean, a composite score. Was it ever yeah. really? Absolute. I don't know. Right. I mean, but now we give Tanzer a number of followers. You right. know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And Definitely. at the same time, you said something which was that it would be retweeted if it were funny. Have we, through social media, introduced humor into the wine discussion a bit more? Oh, absolutely. I think so. There's some very funny Twitter accounts spoof handles out there that sometimes they pop up and uh, just have a limited half-life around a topical issue or something. But, um, but then there are other ones like Shit My Psalm Says that's been around for a number of years now. Have we seen self-promotion and promotion of friend groups become more and more prevalent over the course of social media becoming more and more prevalent? There's a lot of backslapping and Twitter high fives and and log rolling of our day sort of thing going on on Twitter. Yeah, it, but it's social media. And so that's probably what they'd be doing if they were in the room together too. We talked about how your blog is often has a news slant to it. And that news gets broadcast to a wider audience than it might have if it weren't on your blog or other social media sites. Like Brezon says something on Facebook, it becomes a worldwide condemnation right you know which if he'd said it in his living room you know <laughs> right probably less outrage whether deservedly or not you know? right have we seen micro trends become macro trends because of the same phenomenon because of the broadcast medium of the way that you can take things that i might be thinking i might be really into something or somebody else might be really into something and that becomes a little bit bigger than just one person pretty quickly Oh yeah, I mean definitely you can see these things just take off, you know, go viral. And uh but the the question is like if you've got something to sell like a wine or or whatever in our in our case, then you know, they often want to know like what makes it go viral because they want their brand name to get out there or something like that. But I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but yeah, things certainly can take off. It's like the Google algorithm. You know some of the blocks of it say something, you know, outrageous, uh, insert some dancing and then it will go viral, you know, the secret sauce and then it will go viral. But yeah, we're not really sure of, other than of course, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, uh, who would, who would know all, uh, but, uh, uh, we're not, we're not really sure about what happens, uh, how things can go take off like that. But yeah, they certainly, certainly can, you can see small things take off. I mean, look what you did with orange wines, for example. Um, you know, that was a fairly marginal category before you held a couple of tastings uh, and then it really took off you know so yeah i mean things can can move from the periphery to the center of our attention in the wine world and then maybe even 
radiate to even a broader audience after that. But is there a reverb effect? If it takes off, does it sometimes come back down to earth just as quickly or a little bit down the road or? No, those are only my jokes that come back down to earth very quickly. (laughs) No, I just wonder, I mean, if what goes up, does it sometimes come back down in the social media world as well? Yeah. I mean, there's certainly an arc to some of these things, but I guess sometimes be something that goes up there that doesn't ever come down, you know, it just continues rising. But uh, that's probably something like, you know, sweet red wine or something, Moscato or something like that. But uh, one of the things that I find in your blog that I don't often see in a lot of other places is a engagement with that, the idea that there are different market streams at the same time. So when I see a, a duck commander wine, that seems to me, however, in jest you meant it, uh, the post, you know, that seems to me to be at least an awareness that it's not just one market, right? In the same way that sweet red wine is a big market for African Americans, right? Actually, in reality, if you go into a retail shop, that's who's buying that, and they're not buying it in small amounts, mm-hmm. right? Do you feel a need to kind of say, "Hey, look, this is bigger than just your classic stereotype of who drinks wine," or what is the background on, on yeah. why that's interesting. To no, you. I think that we in New York City, we on in the Twitterverse, the wine Twitterverse, tend to focus on wines that we like and rightfully so, because they're the wines that, you know, we want to spend time talking about and drinking. But I do think and, and also there's a sort of a reward system set up there too, that online, again, there's this like high fiving, backslapping thing aspect to it. And people saying, oh yeah, you know, that uh, Jura one was, you know, really great. Pick something kind of obscure and and then people will praise you for it. It's funny because when if you wrote in a newspaper a decade ago or even today, but there's so few newspaper columns left today, uh, the, the goal was always to find a wine that people could actually find. Whereas on Twitter, it's kind of like find a wine that people can't actually find, like a unicorn wine, you know? And so uh, it sort of praises and, and valorizes these incredibly obscure uh, wines, not necessarily expensive, but just incredibly off the beaten path sort of wines that can also be expensive. But yeah, it's a... Uh, well, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. So, Well, I think scarcity is an interesting question to examine through the lens of political economy and wine, right? Right, yeah. I mean, it has to be. Right, exactly. Oh, I was. Go- oh, I know where I was going with the uh, a duck commander type thing, is that there are there is this huge amount of wine that's consumed that we don't ever talk about in our little wine community. And so, uh, and so it's interesting to check in with that every once in a while and see, you know, what's going on there and what drives that, for example, what drives trends kind of interesting and uh, what people are interested in. And so, because, I mean, this positive backdrop that we've got of this rising per capita consumption for 19 years now in a row, that's not driven by people looking for, you know, sherry and wines of Jura. That's driven by Moscato and and bag and box and who knows what else. And so lots of things. And so it's interesting to to check in with that market too. But what you find though, is that those consumers, uh, as much as they might be into wine and into their wine, they don't really engage in a discussion about wine online. And so in a way, if you're trying to make a name for yourself talking about wine online, you're not going to have a lot of success by reviewing 
Moscato. It's not going to really get you very far because that's not a wine that people search for a lot of times online. That's more of an impulse buy at a grocery store or, or, some, or a wine shop or something like that. And so they're not hunting. They're not, they might be enjoying it, but they're not like looking for it and wanting to talk about it online and stuff like that. It's a different type of user reader, type, different type of engagement. In that case, how much does wine play into personal identity in terms of if I were Cindy Sherman today, I might think about dressing myself up to be the sort of person who enjoys jam jar Moscato, right? Like totally wearing a fanciful disguise, inhabiting a different person Mm -hmm. and drinking that wine with that label or drinking Moscato d'Asti or drinking maybe Giron wine. You know, maybe that's not something I drink all the time. I mean, how much of these two things are the same thing? How much do we have a picture in our mind of who drinks a certain wine when we see that label? How much is wine a part of that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot of sociological implications in how people see themselves through what's in their wine glass, you know, how you could map that. In fact, I wanted to do a map of, at one point, I wanted to do a map of different wine types by uh, neighborhood in Manhattan or New York City writ large. I thought that would have been kind of interesting. Uh, But yeah, no, I think wine is so multifaceted. Again, if you want to portray, you know, who you are is going to be uh, reflected in that wine glass somehow. And so whether if you're putting ice cubes in your wine glass, you know, uh, that might say, something about you or the conditions in which you're drinking it, you know, or uh, what type of wine, uh, you know, it, it definitely, definitely has a lot of sociological interest, I think. Tyler Coleman on his blog, Dr. Vino, he takes a look at what you're drinking and what that reflection is on you. Thank you, sir, for being here today. All right. Absolutely. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.